You may be seated. Well, that's a rough start, right? Uh, when I saw this psalm on the preaching schedule a few months ago, um, I literally thought, and maybe you guys are, are thinking the same thing right now, why in the world would you preach that psalm? Um, and then when I saw my name next to it on the schedule, <laughs> uh, it became a very personal question for me. Um, this is one of those texts that people point to and, and say, why would I listen to anything else this book has to say if this is here? Uh, and frankly, it can even cause the most devout, staunch Christian to question their, uh, the, you know, the doctrine of inspiration of Scripture. And, and some of you, uh, you did the whole, this, you know, after, at the end of the reading, you did the, this is the word of the Lord question. Um, Part of the problem is that we just probably haven't taken the time to really look at the psalm. And if you've, if you've read it before, or if you've been in a, you know, you tried to read through the whole book of Psalms, and you, it's one of those things we, we read, we get caught up in the harshness of it, and we, and we don't want to read it anymore. And we read it, and we kind of don't think about it, we skip over it, we try to ignore it. And uh, hopefully this morning we can, get, we can shed some light on the, on the details of the psalm and, and really take time to look at it. But honestly, the bigger problem may not really be the text. Uh, it may actually be us, and that's what I found this week. There's a rawness to this prayer that makes us shift in our seats, and it's, it's white hot with anger. You probably picked up on that. It's, it's almost hatred, and we don't know what to do with emotions like that. And frankly, we don't uh, go to the Psalms for, for that kind of stuff. We go to the Psalms for peace and quiet, and for prayers that refocus and recenter us, and prayers that comfort us and calm us the, you know, breathe in, breathe out kind of psalms and prayers. That's what we want. We don't want these psalms. They're angry and they're disturbing. And Psalm 137 isn't the only one. There are all kinds of psalms like this uh, in the Bible. They're called imprecatory psalms. And most of the time, we really don't want them, but we need them. We need them. We really do. Because what do you do? What do you do when you're mistreated? What do you do when you're confronted by an evil and an injustice that you cannot explain away, you cannot rationalize? What do you do when someone comes up to you? How do you comfort them when they've suffered immensely at the hands of a person or a group of people? How do you do that? What happens when you get angry? And as a church and as a culture, we've gotten better about talking about and owning our grief and our pain and our hurt, and our loss, and, and, and we've gotten, not perfect, but, but better, but we don't talk about anger. We don't talk much about rage. So what do you do with that? Well, Psalm 137 has a lot to say about that, and as we conclude our series in the Psalms this morning, we realize we couldn't not talk about this, because we are all angrier than we think we are just beneath the surface. It's there, and it's often unaddressed and unexamined. Some of us have suffered serious mistreatment and, mis and injustice in our lives, or loss and confusion, and we can talk about the loss and the pain, but what about the rage? Where do you talk about that? What about the anger? And if we don't take that seriously, if we don't learn how to pray our anger, which is what this psalm is about. If we do not learn to pray our anger, it will destroy you. It really will. We need this desperately. 
If you haven't turned there yet, turn to Psalm 137. Uh, while you're turning, I'm going to read verses, just, verses 1 to 6 one more time. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill, and let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Now, you probably notice the psalm does not start as a prayer. It doesn't start as a prayer. Uh, it's not directed to God. It's actually more directed to us, the reader, the audience. And basically, the author wants to give an historical context for what is about to come next. That's what verses 1 to 6 are for. There's a very specific situation behind this psalm that the author wants us to have in mind, or we won't understand what he's saying. And basically, the story behind this psalm is a very common one from the beginning of time, and it remains a common one today. A big and powerful nation, in this case Babylon, invades and destroys a smaller, weaker nation, in this case, Judah. And Babylon actually besieged the capital city of Jerusalem, and they laying siege to a city, you may not know what that is, it's not common military practice anymore because we have artillery and airplanes and, and things, but in the ancient world, when you, you, what you would do to, to, to take a city, you would surround the city with your army, uh, which was usually very heavily fortified, and you, it would, at great cost, you would invade. So you would surround the city first, and you would just cut off their supplies. And for days and weeks and months, until they ran out of clean food and, or clean water and, and food. And you have to remember in those days, when an invading army came, everyone in the countryside fled to the city. There's nowhere else to hide. So everyone is there, men, women, children, soldiers, they're all stuck. And just think about that. Just try to put yourself there for a minute. Think of the, the sanitation problems. Think of the disease, the starvation that would come just after several weeks. And the book of Lamentations in the Bible describes what it was like in the city during this time. And it's a really, really difficult book to read. Once the city was weakened, then you could invade and, and, and sack the city and the soldiers would go in and they would loot and pillage and burn and destroy and kill, and the survivors were taken as slaves to Babylon, as exiles. And this psalm is an eyewitness account of all of that. It's written by someone who saw and experienced that. And embedded here in the psalm are memories of what happened during this invasion. Verses 7 to 9, those last few verses, you have to realize the psalmist is not just making up those punishments for Edom and Babylon. Those aren't coming from nowhere. He's remembering what they did to Jerusalem. So when Edom, which neighbored Judah, saw that Babylon was going to destroy Jerusalem, they came out and they cheered as the people were slaughtered by the Babylonians. Right? Tear it down. Destroy it. And Babylon, when it invaded, and this was very common practice um, in the ancient world, and this is what's so appalling to us, uh, but when Babylon invaded, they would often take your children and, and murder them right in front of you. Uh, they would take a child from the arms of their parents, and they would, they would slam them on the ground or against a wall or, or on a rock, and I know this is disturbing stuff, 
but we cannot close our eyes to it. And, and, and frankly, it's, this is common practice today. I said it was common in the ancient world. It's common today. And that memory of what happened is preserved for us here in Psalm 137. And on top of all of that, if that weren't enough, there is a deep theological confusion in this psalm. And, and the, the, the writer mentions the songs of Zion, right? It says the Babylonian captors, probably on threat of violence, said, sing us a song of Zion to shame them. Sing us a song of how your God is the only God. You pitiful nothing. Sing to us about Zion. Sing to us about Jerusalem and how all the nations are going to go there and worship your God, the city we just destroyed. Sing us a song about that. We're all ears. And the psalmist feels that tension. And just before you read Psalm 137, if you, as a reader, there's a Psalm 136 and the refrain of which God's steadfast love, his loyal, his permanent love, it endures forever. And it's like, really? Even in light of this, how do you sing that song in a foreign land? And as the psalmist, uh, where's the psalmist emotionally right now in light of all of that? He's enraged. He's angry, and he should be. And that's the first thing we learn in this psalm. We need to get angry. And after everything that has happened to him, the psalmist gets angry, and he stays angry at the injustice of what has happened to his people, and he refuses to sing. He invokes a curse upon himself instead of sing, right? He says, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue stick to the... This is a musician we're talking about. He says, may my, may my heart playing hand and my singing voice be taken from me if I capitulate to these people. He gets angry and he stays angry and he should. And in our particular culture, we have a problem with anger. We talked about this earlier. When we get angry, I think it's especially true of Christians, we think that our anger is a sign of spiritual weakness, that we're supposed to be aloof and objective about things. And the Bible does warn us about reacting in anger foolishly and, and what can happen with that. And, but experiencing anger and owning anger is not a sin. You know who gets angry a lot in the Bible? God. The Bible is full of God's wrath and anger at sin and injustice. It's full of it. And again, these are the passages that we skip over and we hope uh, that our friends don't see when we invite them to read the Bible, right? Because we don't get mad. We don't, we don't get mad. That's why we have Jesus, this great moral teacher. He's, the, you know, the Old Testament is angry and Jesus is, is not, but Jesus is no stoic. He's not a mystical. He gets mad a lot too. When Jesus, just before he raises his friend Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11, he confr he's confronting the grave and the unbelief around him. The text says that he, is, he gets as angry as a war horse in battle. That's the image in the Greek. He's furious. He's absolutely furious. So get angry. Seriously. Get angry. But you have to get angry at the right things. Because many of us get angry. That's not hard. In fact, many of us are angry all the time. Feels like every day we're angry. But we're never angry at the right things. And I'm just going to own this. This is me, just so you know. That's me. And I took a workplace personality test a few years ago. Yeah, you know where this is going. And a, re <laughs> a really good personality test tricks you into answering honestly, right? I mean, we all try to, like, what's the answer I'm supposed to give 
Uh, good tests account for that. And we all do that. But I got the results back and I had the highest intensity score uh, of anyone on staff at Christ Community. And uh, intensity is a nice word for how, how frequently you experience anger. And it made me so angry. <laughs> I couldn't resist. Now, anger in itself, okay? I had to get, kind of get through this. Anger in itself is not wrong. The Bible is full of commands to get angry. Psalm 4, verse 4, we preached it a few weeks ago. Be angry, but do not sin. But anger, like any God-given ability, it can be twisted for selfish reasons because I so often get angry at the wrong things. I get angry when my plans fall through, when my kids don't do what I expect them to do, when my time is disrupted, when I hit that fifth stoplight in Overland Park and I'm already late, so I moved to Missouri, which I did. What is... What does that tell me? What does that tell me? It's not that I have an anger problem. It's that I have an idolatry problem. I get mad when my idols of my plan or my time or my expectations, when those get disrupted, that's when I get mad. So what do you get mad at? Do you only get mad at the things that affect you personally? Do you get impatient when you don't get your way? Do you shift the blame when things go badly at work? Do you get mad at the wrong things? Now, an important step, I, ha I hasten to add, even when you are mad at the wrong things, you've still got to own your anger. To say it out loud, even, to, even just to yourself, but maybe even to somebody else, you say, I'm angry that this happened. Even when you know it's for selfish reasons, seriously, that is a healthy practice in your life. And what you'll find if you can do that is that you'll get less and less angry in the wrong situations. I am not saying that when you are angry at the wrong things that you stuff it. That doesn't work. That's not healthy. And usually, if you're honest with yourself, you stuff your anger not because you're afraid of blowing up at so-and-so, but you're embarrassed of what you're angry at. And you don't, you don't want anyone to know. So I'm not saying that, but we've got to get angry at the right things. And some of you have the opposite problem. We don't get angry at the wrong things, we just can't get angry at the right things. We experience no anger at rampant injustice at all, and this is just as dangerous as being angry at the wrong things. This psalm is about injustice on a collective societal scale. It's injustice of one race of people against an, an other, an, another race of people, the Jews. So let's just go there. Does it make you angry when you think about the cold and callous abortion of the unborn? Does that make you angry? Does it anger you that, according to the CDC, children of minorities are four times as likely to be aborted than white children? Does it make you uh, angry when organizations uh, harvest organs from these procedures and then hide behind the law? Let me tell you, what Babylon did to Jerusalem was perfectly legal in the ancient world. There's no international law on how to treat a defeated country. But what they did was perfectly legal but does it make you mad? Does it make you angry that in our city we are raising an entire generation of young people who do not have access to accredited public education and their chances of living above the poverty line are dramatically lower based solely on the zip code in which they're born? That's all you gotta look at. Does it anger you that most, not all, but most of those children are an ethnic minority 
but that's a disproportionate number. Does that make you mad? And I am not trying to scapegoat anyone here. I'm not trying to blame them for these problems. I'm not pointing a finger at anyone, seriously. But does injustice make you mad or not? Because I get that solutions to these problems may be complex. And so often, these conversations degenerate. (laughs) It starts with right and wrong. It degenerates into, well, it's more complex than that. I get that solutions are complex, but injustice is not. Injustice is wrong. And it should make us mad. Because if you can't get mad at the right things, if you can't get mad at the evil in the world, then it probably means you don't love the good in the world very much. You know why God is angry so much in the Bible? You know why? It's because he loves his world and his people, his children, so much. Not ever being angry is not an anger problem. It's a love problem. When someone threatens someone you love, how do you feel? How do you react? What do you do? Can we be the kind of people who get angry at the things that God cares about too? So get angry, seriously. But then give it to God. It's the second thing we learn. Get angry, but then give it to God. And look at back at what the psalmist does in verse 6. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem and how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. Now you see, there's a turn here in verse 6. The psalmist moves away from his own painful memories of what has happened. He begins to address God directly. He says, remember, Lord, what happened to us and what our enemies did to us. He does not hide his anger. He doesn't suppress his anger. He doesn't ignore his anger. At the height of his anger, when he could simply begin cursing his enemies, he does not. What does he do? He turns to God. And he directs his anger to him. Do you see that? His anger, his legitimate anger at what has happened, drives him to God. And he begins to pray his anger. And this is incredibly important for us. We have to give our anger to God because God will do better things with our anger than we will. We've got to give our anger to him. And note specifically how the psalmist does this. He says, God, you remember. You remember. Now, in English, uh, remembering is a passive mental activity. It just means call something to mind that's, that's already happened. But in the Hebrew mindset, to remember is to call something to mind with the purpose of taking action. It means remember God and then do something about it. In other words, the psalmist is asking for God's judgment. Oh, I'm sorry. So what is the psalm? I went too far. So what is the psalmist doing here? He's coming to God in his anger, yes, but he's coming to God as his judge. He's saying, you, God, and not I, you have to take action. You have to do something. He's asking for God's judgment, but he's not asking for vengeance. He does not say, God, give me the power to wipe these people out, nor does he say, may I be accursed if I do not avenge the blood of the innocent. He doesn't pray any of that. He says, God, you judge. You judge. He gives a recommendation to be sure. He says, repay them exactly what they've done to us, but he leaves the decision in God's hands. 
And here's a major lesson that this prayer teaches us about our anger. And our anger, even our legitimate anger at incredible pain and injustice, is not righteous anger until it can say to God, I am angry, what happened is wrong, but I am not the judge. I am not the judge. The psalmist is modeling incredible faith here because it takes incredible faith to let God be the judge when you've encountered true evil. The psalmist knows, despite all his anger, that only God has the wisdom, only God has the power, and only God has the right to judge. So in your anger, are you asking for God's judgment or for personal vengeance? Does your anger drive you to God or does it drive you to vengeance? Anger is not the problem. If deep, deep down, you do not want God's judgment, but vengeance against your enemies, if your prayers, even on a subconscious level, are for strength to smite your enemies or to be there when they finally get it, if you are asking for vengeance, it's not because you have an anger problem, it's because you have a faith problem. It means you do not believe that God cares. You do not believe that he can do something about injustice in your life. You do not believe that he will ultimately remember all things and bring them to judgment. So you've got to do it. You've got to take matters into your own hands because God can't or he won't. See, that's a faith problem. Many scholars and pundits today uh, decry the, the theme of judgment that's so prevalent in the Bible because they say it makes Christians a violent people. Now, that could, could not be further from the truth. And, and Miroslav Volf, we, we've quoted him here several times. He's a Christian ethicist at Yale, Croatian. He points out that only so well that the only thing, the only thing that will stop a cycle of violence and vengeance is the belief in God that he will make things right. But I don't need to take things into my own hands because God is judge. Now, listen, asking for God's judgment is not a polished affair. Okay, I get that. Psalm 137 is not a legal dossier, dossier that, needs, that can be read in a, in a courtroom. Okay? This is, this is not what I'm saying. This is as real and emotive as it gets. He puts all of it on the table with God, and we can too. We can ask God to wipe the wicked off the face of the earth and give them exactly what they deserve. The Bible's full of prayers like that. But at the end of the prayer, the psalmist has left everything up to God, and in his timing, and in his plan, he says, you, Lord, remember and judge. He can give his anger to God because he trusts that God is judge. Can we do the same thing? In your anger, do you ask for God's judgment or are you asking for vengeance? Because asking for God's judgment is the only way to deal with your anger. If you cannot give it to God, and it, it will turn into bitterness and vengeful hate, and it will destroy you. That does not mean that praying takes anger away. It, it might, it might not. But it keeps you from destroying yourself because you know, you know that God has a plan to make this right. And if we can truly trust God as judge, then we can also do the last thing that Psalm 137 teaches us. And here it is. We have to turn our anger into praise. Turn our anger into praise. And you're probably wondering, where in the world is that coming from, from Psalm 137? And to be sure, this psalm ends with a call for God's judgment. There's not, there's not a line here of praise specifically, but this psalm is not meant to stand by itself. And we've 
said this throughout the series, the Psalms are surrounded by other Psalms, and they're meant to be. They're meant to be read in context. Tom mentioned a while back that the Psalms were divided into five books. Psalm 137 is in the fifth book. And the final line of book five and the entire book of Psalms, the final line is, praise the Lord. We talked last week that all prayer, the goal of all prayer is praise. But how do we turn our anger into praise? How do we do that? Well, we have to remember something that we have that the psalmist did not. You see, the psalmist didn't know how God answered his own prayer in Psalm 137. He doesn't see the answer, but we do. Remember the songs of Zion? We talked about those. The songs of Zion were a promise that God would dwell with his people, that he would be their God, and they would be his people forever. Psalm 46 is a great example. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, Jerusalem. The holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. And the psalmist said, I will not let go of these promises. They're too precious to me. I won't sing them for my enemies. You remember that. But don't you know that God answered those prayers? He answered them. God himself showed up one day in Zion. The word became flesh and he dwelt among us. He came to Jerusalem. And you know what? We killed him for it. And he led us. Why? Psalm 137, it asks for judgment. Another way of saying that, it asks for payment. They came, they took our little ones, they killed them. And the implied question to God in the psalm is, and so God, who's going to pay for that? Don't forget, God, who is going to pay? And God's answer is not the Babylonians, and it's not the Edomites, it's not any historical enemy of Israel, in fact. So who pays? Well, God does. Because the testimony of Scripture is that all of us, even Israel, all of us, are Babylon. We took God's little one, didn't we? By our sin, we took God's little one and we dashed him against the rocks. But he did it voluntarily. He chose it. He doesn't ignore the evil of Babylon or the evil in my heart, the evil in our hearts, but he pays for it. And he takes the curse of Babylon and the curse on every human being because we are all guilty and he absorbs the punishment for that. And when we began this sermon, part of what I was trying to do was explain the legitimacy of this prayer, right? This pain, the loss, the injustice. Of course the psalmist is angry. Of course he's asking for judgment. Look what happened to him. Jesus had every right and more to pray for judgment on the cross, did he not? The only innocent man to ever live, dashed on the rocks by all of humanity, and yet he says, what? Father, forgive them. And when you see that for the first time, and every time afterwards, it will turn your anger into praise. Praise to the God who, when you trust in his salvation, does not repay you according to what you deserve. Because everything the Babylonians did, if the Bible is true, I did. 
and yet I'm forgiven because the curse of Babylon fell on the God of Zion. And when you get that, understanding that God's judgment fell on Jesus instead of you, this is the only way we can pursue justice in an unjust world. It's the only way. Psalm 137 is probably written by someone who's returned to Jerusalem from Babylon. And you know what that generation did? That first generation back? They rebuilt the wall to protect the innocent who lived in the city. That's the first thing they did. His anger, preserved for us here, turned into justice because he gave his anger to God. Seeing this is also the only way to make any sense of Jesus' teaching about our enemies. This is why Jesus, on the one hand, can teach us, you'll be mistreated, you'll be persecuted, you will have enemies in this life. He says that. And on the other hand, he can say, but love them. Love your enemies. Some of you have enemies in your life right now that you're, you're praying Psalm 137 over right now. Sometimes, you know, it's, it could be at work. It could be, there could be things that have happened to you that are unspeakable, horrific things. I don't want to ignore that. You weren't ready to love your enemies yet. That's okay. It, it can take a lifetime to do that. Really, it can. But there's a critical step between the reality of mistreatment and loving your enemies that we often forget. You cannot will yourself to love your enemies. You cannot, if you've tried, you know you can't do it. But what you can do is praise the God who saved you even when you were his enemy. And slowly, if you can do that, that anger toward them will become praise to him. God is not afraid of your anger. He wants to do something with it, something glorious, something beautiful. God used his anger at sin and evil in the world to save the world. May he use our anger to the glory of his name forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that because of your son, none of us, not one of us, get what we deserve when we trust in you. By your power working within us, make us the kind of people who love what you love and who are angered by what angers you. And may we always give our anger to you in prayer, knowing that you will do better things with our anger than we ever could. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.